um, active. Sometimes you think um, you come here on a Sunday and think that's this is this is all that takes place. But then you hear us talk and all the events going on and the recent work day we had at the mission home. And you realize there's a lot that goes on during the week. I mean, and it's encouraging to me to be a part of a church that is so active and and, and doing so much. Um, and, and not just for the sake of activity, but there's a purpose behind it. We want to see people come to know Christ. We want to see them grow. Uh, we want to see them, uh, a strong body of believers. Uh, and that's why we do what we do. And then once a week, we come together corporately uh, to be able to worship God, to hear his word proclaimed, um, and to fellowship with one another. Uh, just encourage you as you see things taking place in the bullet. If you read through the bulletin and see all that's going on, participate. There's a, there's a lot to be involved with, uh, a lot of activity taking place. And uh, like I said, it's a blessing to be a part of that. It really is. We're continuing our study in the book of Exodus. I want to mention to you, in fact, more than just mention, there's a country probably half Around, halfway around the world, across the ocean, a very small country, but with very, very many people who know nothing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a very poor country, a very troubled country. I'm talking about the country of North Korea. Perhaps you've heard some, read some. And, and as I read more about it and, and just look a little bit into it, you realize, wow. For years, and if you look at the date, July 27th, 1953, they drew a line. And the doors closed, both literally and figuratively, between North and South Korea. And for those 60 years, many of the people on either side of that line have never seen their family members and have passed on. In some cases, their brothers and sisters, their aunts and uncles, grandparents, even spouses, never to see them again. And it's sad when you read some about this, and, and if you've ever looked at pictures or anything, you see the faces, especially sometimes of children, and you realize the just abject poverty that they're in, not just economically, but spiritually, socially, it grieves, or it should grieve, our hearts. I know it does God's heart. And we need to be pleading in prayer on behalf of the people there, as well as other closed countries, for God's divine and sovereign intervention. See, he does that, you know, on an international scale. God moves kings and kingdoms. And he did. Thousands of years ago, he heard the groaning of a people who were unjustly slaved, enslaved. They were mistreated. They were without hope. And they went day after day of hard physical labor. It's no hope. It's all they knew. Many of us can relate to that in our own lives because sometimes we find ourselves in what seems like an endless fog. Things don't seem to be coming together. And I'm not just talking about minutes. I'm talking about years. We have to ask ourselves, what is missing? Is there something I'm supposed to know? Is there some magical formula that will get me out of this? I don't have to tell you, we all know full well life is not always going to be easy. That's a given. 
But no matter what comes my way, isn't there something I can do or someone to help me? Because the days are getting long, the work is back-breaking, and there seems to be no hope. Last week, Carrie brought us through chapter 5 in our study of Exodus, and we learned that in the midst of some sometimes unrealistic expectations on our part, there is hope. There is a God. We have a future. When you look back all the way through, beginning in Exodus 1, that opened a new chapter in the lives of the people of Israel, where for hundreds of years they had been here in this country and had become slaves to the Egyptians. And until Exodus 2, we're introduced to God's providence, and he appoints a, a leader, a reluctant leader, Moses and reveals his providential care over his people. And chapter 2 ends with an interesting note because it says that God heard his people and he knew. In chapter 3, God goes back to that leader Moses and taps him on the shoulder in the form of a burning bush and says, It's you. Has rather a long extended conversation with him describing what he wants to do. We heard the back and forth with Moses, and Moses saying, it's not me. I said, I'm sure you're thinking of somebody else. And God says, no, it's, it's, it's you. You're the one who's going to do this. I'm going to use you. And then Exodus 5 reveals some rather unrealistic expectations that both Moses and the people had. And we were reminded that God is indeed at work, even though the current circumstances don't seem to indicate that fact. And then at the end of chapter 4, verse 31, you remember Moses' conversation with the people of Israel. It ends on a rather high note, because after he describes to them his experience at the burning bush, they're all excited as well. Let's do this. They're worshiping God. And from this overwhelmingly positive response, Moses propels into Pharaoh's presence and says, let my people go. And the answer comes back, no. What? You know, and maybe he's thinking, okay, I got this staff. If I throw it down and it turns into a snake, he'll run just like I ran from, from it. He had some rather unrealistic expectations. Little did he know what was coming, was going to take place. Because the events in chapter 5, if you read through those, we looked through them last week, it seemed like major fail. After all that God had said to Moses in chapter 3 and 4, and then chapter 5 comes along, and it's discouraging. Instead of movement in a positive direction, things actually get progressively worse. Kind of like when a government has leaders who are unwilling to work with one another to make good and wise decisions affecting the country's future, which precipitates a nationwide crisis and a shutdown of services until... Well, and regardless of where you place the blame, the ones who truly suffer are the innocent and powerless. Sounds somewhat familiar, doesn't it? Look at the situation that Israel was in. If you open your Bibles, we're in Exodus. I'm looking at chapter 5, and we're going to be looking mainly in chapter 6 today. But chapter 5, we need to go back, get a little bit of context in verse 15. The foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is your own people. 
And he, Pharaoh, said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task is each day. What a letdown. What a dashing of hopes. Here they thought this was going to be it. And you notice there's no mention of an uprising among the uh, um, Israelite leaders. They didn't say, you know, we need to form some alliances, raise some funding, organize protests, uh, million-man march, uh, attract the big media outlets. We're going to show Pharaoh he can't mess with us. No, their dream at this point was to survive tomorrow. Tomorrow, we make a break. Tomorrow, tomorrow, today, we make a break. Tomorrow, maybe we make two bricks, hopeless and helpless. Meanwhile, God was working. Certainly didn't see it, but he was. And this brings us to today's passage. We're going to be looking at chapter 5, verse 22, and we'll go all the way to chapter 7, verse 7. Now, the narrative is broken up in some way. I've I've chosen this way to do it if you want to uh, jot this down. It's in five parts that I did it today. The verses. 22 and 23 of chapter 5. This is Moses' accusation. And then it goes to God's answer. 6, 1 through 13. And then it goes back to Moses' credentials. 6, 14 to 25. And then it goes back to God's plan. 7, 1 through 5. And then back to Moses and his obedience in chapter 7, Verses 6 through 7. So we'll somewhat track through that today. But just before this, just before chapter 5, verse 22, remember that the Egyptian-appointed Israelite leaders had put Moses and Aaron on blast, basically. It's your fault, they said, for this injustice and grief. And so what does Moses do? 5.22. Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. and You have not delivered your people at all. Moses, in his humanness, in his finite perspective, he turns to God not to worship or intercede or to praise, but to question and accuse. Now, this is the first time that Moses actually goes to God. If you notice the other encounters through uh, Exodus, all the way from chapter 1, it's God going to Moses. Here, Moses goes to God, and he calls it, of all things, evil. It's a word that's translated in other places as trouble or harm. And he says, you have done evil, and Pharaoh has done evil. He mentions the the evil that Pharaoh is doing. That's a correct assessment. But then he said, God, you are the source and the instigator. That's an incorrect assessment. See, Moses implies that you haven't quite come through like you promised. But that's not true. What could be said is, you haven't come through quite like I expected. That could be true. And this coming from a man who had just had a very real and vivid encounter with God at the burning bush, with a snake, and also a direct conversation. And this part, this is a very raw and revealing conversation. Uh, where Moses addresses God in this way. And it, it really causes us to ask that question. 
should we or can we ascribe evil to God? Is he really the source? No, I don't believe he is. Is there evil? Of course there is. And can we ask God why when evil does touch us in some way? Oh, I think we can. In fact, quite honestly, he he can take it. Of anyone, he can take it. In fact, there may be times when he answers, I'm glad you asked why about this evil. I believe that's what, in essence what he said to Moses. Chapter 6, verse 1. This is number 2, 6, 1 through 13, God's answer. Here's his answer. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God's answer is, just watch. Watch what, he will, what I will do. There's no rebuke here, just a reaffirmation of his promise. And notice this. This is God's sovereignty. This is how God behaves in the, in the world at that time, in the world today. He chooses when to act. He chooses how and what. In other words, it's in his way. And he chooses why for his purpose. God chooses that. And God is going to use Pharaoh to move Israel out of Egypt. It doesn't seem like how it should be. It should be the other way around. But God's saying, I'm going to use Pharaoh to do that. Verses 2 through 5. Here's God saying, this is what I have done for Israel. If you notice the verb in these, the verbs in these verses, they're past tense. This is what I have done. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. This was new territory for the people of Israel. They knew and were acquainted with the stories of old. God appearing to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and how Joseph had arrived in Egypt, all the while being held and cared for by El Shaddai, that's God Almighty. But now, he's preparing to reveal himself in new, more intimate ways. And if you track through scripture, you're going to see that this is progressive, how God chooses to do this. How he chooses to reveal himself and relate to his created beings. It started out with Adam and Eve in the garden. And that was a very close relationship. Remember he says that they, they walked with him in the evening with God himself. But then sin came in and broke that relationship. Years later, God intervened once again through Noah and had a conversation with Noah. Noah was obedient, did what God asked, and God saved him and his family. Following that, God visited Abraham spoke to Isaac, wrestled with Jacob, and then in his sovereignty orchestrated circumstances for Joseph and his brothers. Now, 400 years later, God once again intervenes, speaking with Moses and then to Aaron. He was about to reveal himself powerfully to both Israelites and the Egyptians. 
and then set up a system. We're going to find this later. Where he sets up a system for worship where he can be present among his people. It was called the tabernacle. And he gave them structure as a nation, the Mosaic law, something they had not had in Egypt as slaves. And following that, he communicated to his people through his prophets. Much of that's recorded in scripture. And we realize the love, deep, deep love that he had for his people. And then the incarnation. God himself in flesh. He made a permanent way for us to commune with him through Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross. And he gave us indwelling Holy Spirit who lives within us. And we can have that intimacy with him because of Christ and because of his Holy Spirit. And then one day, he promises, we will be in his presence for all of eternity. You see the progression there? He keeps drawing his people in over the millennia. He wants that relationship with his people. He wants that relationship with us. And here's a point in Exodus where he's telling Moses, this is different. It was God Almighty, El Shaddai. Now it's going to be the Lord. And this word for it, this is what we have uh, looked at before, it is the great I Am. He is the I Am. He's reaching out over the millennia to reveal himself to us. And he's saying, this is my covenant identity, my presence with you. I am the God of keeping promises. I am approachable, but on my terms. That's what the Lord says. Now, in various places, we see this, an attempt at transliteration, saying this is Yahweh or Jehovah. And sometimes when you hear those words, it's the transliteration of this word Lord. But it's the I am, the great I am. Remember, we heard about that. It is, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. This is the Lord. That's the name that was being introduced to Moses and his people at this time. We shift from saying what he has done for Israel in verses 2 through 5, and now he says what I will do for Israel. And you'll see the verbs in this passage, uh, verses 6 through 8, are all future tense. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. See what that's framed with? I am the Lord at the beginning. I am the Lord at the end. God is making sure that they have absolutely no doubt who it is that's doing this. And look at the promises there. If you were to count them out, there are seven. These seven promises framed by I am the Lord. The first one is, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God's gracious purpose. Not just relief, fewer bricks, but deliverance. This is the day-to-day struggle to survive, the impossible to please bosses, the daily injustices, the lack of basic, of the basic need of safety. He's going to bring them out from that. I will deliver you from slavery to them. You will be free 
Now, many of us, it's kind of hard to relate to this. We're like, oh, yeah, well, we're free. Because we've grown up in generations of freedom. The, the people of Israel had not. They'd grown up in generations of slavery. And when God says freedom, they're like, huh? What's that? So he's promising them you'll be free. And third, I will redeem you with power and justice. The word redeem, he's going to purchase them. He's going to purchase their freedom. It costs something. The people were going to be introduced to the sacrificial system. So they understood that God was redeeming them. And there is a cost involved. God is a redemptive God. He is an all-powerful God. He is a just God. And fourth, promise, I will take you to be my people. The nation of Israel. Why them? Why not some strategically located, globally positioned, well-organized, powerful, economically stable nation like Egypt? Why a group of slaves, shepherds, and brickmakers, no country to call their own, no leadership, no political strategy, no foreseeable future? They certainly didn't deserve to be selected and redeemed, yet God did it anyway. And this is a word for adoption. He adopted them. You're my people. It's an identity. They belong to him. He says the, number, the fifth promise, I will be your God. You will know. You will know that I am the Lord. This is being a part of God's forever family. It's a relationship. Remember, this is what God is doing. He's pulling people into a relationship with him. And amid all the distracting gods of the Egyptians, and there were many, there is one God. He's making himself available to the people of Israel. They can know him intimately, unlike the other feared gods of the Egyptians. That was the fifth. Sixth promise, I will bring you into the land. The land he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this would mean leaving the comfort zone of Egypt. I'm sure that caused some concern for some people saying, this is all we've known. You want us to leave this? But he's saying, I'm bringing you into the land. It's the land he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This would mean... Uh, living in a new place, not just relief from slavery, not just freedom, but their own place to call home. And then seventh promise, I will give it to you for a possession. You're not just going to be tenants. You're going to be landowners. A place to call their own completely different from the land of Egypt. This is not even extreme makeover home addition. Far, far beyond that. After generations of oppression and dependency with no real identity, they can now have their own place. Now, if you look through these seven promises, there's something interesting here. There's some parallels to salvation. Our salvation. You see that? First one, new life in Christ. It gives us a reason to live each day. There is hope. When he says, I'll bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, there is hope. It's the reality of being forgiven of the sins of the past, living free from the bondage of sin in the present, and the promise of eternity in the presence of a sinless God. The second point for salvation, they're no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. Romans 6.18, having been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. So just as the Israelites are being freed we also can be freed. 
And third, redemption. He talks about, I will redeem you with power and justice. In our salvation experience, we are redeemed by God through Christ's blood with power over death. 1 Corinthians 6.20, Paul writes that you were bought with a price. That was Christ's blood. And then, and then fourth, I will take you to be my people. We are adopted as his sons. Ephesians 1.5, he has predestined us for adoption as sons. A position we certainly don't deserve. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that what he does for us? He doesn't say, first become successful, get yourself together, then I'll, I'll see if I'll take you in. No, he takes us in just like he did the people of Israel. They were enslaved. They were in bondage. They were suffering. And that's how he takes us. He doesn't say, get your act together first. He says, I'll take you just as you are. You don't deserve it, but I'll still take you. That's God's grace. We're adopted as his sons. And then the fifth, I will be your God. It's a relationship with God amidst all the clutter in this life. There's a lot of it. The people of Israel faced it as well. All those gods that were so confusing among the Egyptians. And God is saying, there is one God. I am the Lord. The same for us. A relationship with God amid all the other things in this life. And I will bring you into the land. That's our future hope of heaven. We can be with him for eternity. In a place. Not just in our imagination, but in a very real place. I will give it to you for a possession. It's the possession of eternal life. Isn't it interesting how that goes through those seven promises? And those are promises for us that we can know God intimately. We can know that he is the God of the universe because of Jesus, his son, making the sacrifice for us in our place. And he spells it out right here, way back in the book of Exodus. Before we move on, one thing also I want to make note in those first eight verses. Look back through there in your Bible for a moment. And notice the pronoun I. Quite frequently. In fact, in the translation I used, I counted 18 times in those short eight verses. Does that tell you something? <laughs> it tells, you, tells us that God wants no mistake to be made. Who is doing the work? Who is about to do the work? God himself is. He makes it very clear to the people. If there's anything that's going to take place, it is he who's doing it. Verses 9 through 13, this is where God instructs him to speak to Pharaoh. Verse 9, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, let the people of Israel out of this land. But again... Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I, have, I, I am of uncircumcised lips. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about, the Pharaoh, about Pharaoh king of Egypt to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So they were, their broken spirit and their harsh slavery, the conditions of the people, were, they were suffocating under them. It's like a thick, dark cloud of smoke or a blanket of darkness. These circumstances were deep. There was no hope. And for them, reality is difficult, to, if not impossible, to grasp. 
And Moses says, it's no good. They don't listen to me. Pharaoh won't listen to me with my lack of eloquence and speech. And God just patiently once again says, Moses, it's not you. It's me. I will do it. Just go. Verses 14 through 25 are interesting. It's a second time that a, a genealogy has come up in, um, in the book of Exodus so far. The first time was in the very first chapter. But this is somewhat a credentialing of Moses. This is who he is. I'm not going to, uh, for the sake of time, not read through all of those. Although if you're interested, if you're maybe looking for baby names or something, there's quite a few in there to select from. Um, but this is so important for the narrative so that there's no mistaking the identity of who it is that Moses and Aaron were. In fact, if you pick it up in verse 26, these are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their host. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron is repeated there a number of times because that's Moses' credentials. In verse 28, on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will, Mo- how will Pharaoh listen to me? And then God says, I have a plan. And this is in verses 1 through 5. He tells Moses his plan. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Wow, wait, did, what did he just say? I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Wow, you see, because Pharaoh himself was considered a god by his people. If he's going to listen to somebody, he needs to have an understanding that this is a person that I need to listen to and respect. And Moses is is rightly saying, I don't think that I'm the one that he's going to be listening to. And God says, you're right. But he's going to listen to me because he's going to see what I'm going to do. And I'm going to make you like God to Pharaoh. This is the first part of God's plan. Moses has credibility not from himself. And Pharaoh is going to recognize that he is someone to be reckoned with. And this is interesting. The second time that Moses hears these words, the first one was back in chapter 4, verse 16. The conversation at the burning bush, God makes this statement in relation to Aaron. He will be as God to him. And in this case, it is God who has orchestrated and influenced Pharaoh's perception of Moses and Aaron. And he's saying, make no mistake, I did this. Verse 2, you shall speak all that I command you, And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. You notice the word in there, all. Not selective, but all. Typically when we have someone in a position of significance, we like to have a press secretary. A mayor or a president will have a press secretary. And if the mayor or president says, I want it done this way and like that, the press secretary usually says, no, hold a minute. Let's, let's put a more positive spin on it so it doesn't land quite so harshly. It's a very difficult job. I would never want it. But in this case... There is no press secretary. There's no filter. God says, if I say it, I want you to say everything, everything that I say. Because that's important. Don't add words in. Don't take words out. It's a good lesson for us. 
Because some of us would like to take our Bible and, and look through and say, you know, there's just some parts in here, God, I don't know if you meant it this way, but maybe we could just skim over that. No. And this is how God presents his scripture to us. All of it. All of God's word is important. When we look at it, we can't just select and, and take out the parts that, that we tend to like and emphasize only those and then skim out over others. This is what God is saying to, to Moses. All that I command you. And what's going to happen? Verse 3. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. And then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Now, again, it's kind of hard for us because we know how the story goes. Uh, we, we've read ahead in Exodus and we know about the plagues and everything. But Moses is sitting and Aaron are sitting here listening and saying, Okay, great acts of judgment. I got the stick and the snake. What else are we going to do here? They don't quite understand what God is doing. And I, I, I get that. Uh, and so they're struggling with this. What's going to take place? And, and the fact that God's going to harden Pharaoh's heart? Listen to the summary. You tell Pharaoh to let my people go. I'll harden his heart. I'll multiply my signs and wonders. Pharaoh won't listen to you, and I'll bring my people out of the land. Sound like a plan? Good. Let's go. <laughs> and you and I would have been sitting there saying, um, hold on a minute. And that's exactly what Moses and Aaron were doing. A key verse, key phrase, I'm sorry, is in chapter 7, verse 5. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. This is a significant phrase. It's called a recognition formula. And it appears again and again in the book of Exodus especially. Uh, to stress that God is choosing to reveal himself to whomever he wants, whenever he wants, in whatever form he wants, but in a way that whoever is on the receiving end knows without a doubt that it is God Almighty. That's what the recognition formula is. And when he says it here in this context, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. But he, so he kind of gives you a hint. You know, This is going to be more than just a stick and a snake, isn't it? Uh, oh, yes. Oh, yes. We'll find out later on. It most certainly is. See, the Egyptians will know, just as you know Israel, but in a different way. They felt the plagues, and for a different reason, for judgment. Well, now that God has laid out his plan for Moses and Aaron, they have an opportunity to respond. And this is 5th, chapter 7, verses 6 through 7, Moses' obedience. Look at that, verse 6. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now, this is just a few words. It's a very short verse, but it is so critical. Because quite often, quite honestly, this is where we often fail. We understand who God is, what he can do, what his plan is, but we choose to live a life of disobedience and then wonder, why am I not hearing from God? Where are all these things he promised? He promised great things. See, his actions are tied to our obedience. And it's significant that Moses and Aaron stepped out and they did 
what God said, even though it didn't seem like the smart thing to do. We can't go on tripping through our life on our own terms and then act all offended when we think God isn't coming through. Hello? Whose fault is that? We are like that. We are humans. We just want to do our own thing, and if there's a problem that comes along, we go to God for that. And he says, I've been here the whole time. I want your obedience. It doesn't look, it doesn't look sane sometimes. It, didn't, it certainly didn't to Moses and Aaron. Walking in there with a stick, that's it. But he wants our obedience. He wants a complete obedience. And that one little verse is so significant in this whole passage. Because they did what he asked them to do. Our daily obedience is essential to reaping the benefits of God's plan for us. Let me repeat that. Our daily obedience is essential to reaping the benefits of God's plan for us. The last verse, now, Moses was 80 years old. And Aaron, 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. I can't let that one go by. 80 years old? Are you serious? Wow. And then some of us think, oh, this is, I'm well past my prime. Oh, no. He was 80 years old when he was doing this. In fact, think of it this way. God had been working in his life for 80 years to prepare him for this event. Wow. Some of us have a long ways to go, don't we? (laughs) Now, granted, longevity was different at that time, but the point is, God can still use us. doesn't matter what age we are. Beware of of thinking the fact, you know what? My retirement is just going to be, I'm going to just sail off on a boat and enjoy the sunset from my retiring years. No way. God can still use us. In fact, sometimes you'll hear some missionaries say that. this That's the prime time of your life. You have the experience. That's when you go do something. All the rest is just preparation. Wow. I better move on from that. Well, for the people of Israel, all this we've been talking about today, chapter 5 and 6, it's still taking place with those early mornings, those late nights, back-breaking work, foreman shouting, whips cracking, grief upon grief, as they face another day tomorrow, manufacturing yet more bricks, saying, what's he going to do, build a pyramid or something with all these? And now, we have to find our own straw to make the bricks and mix it with the mud, one after another, one brick at a time, Day after day, another day, another brick. When will this ever end? Hope? Yeah, I have hope. I hope I can save tomorrow. Uh, I hope I can survive until tomorrow. I hope I hope to be able to put food on my table. My hope is for an end to the mistreatment I experienced from people I once trusted. See, in the narrative that connects the hopelessness of chapter 5 with the events of chapter 7 that we're about to see is a simple conversation in chapter 6. But, oh, so significant. Because it meant for Moses to stop and to listen and commune with God. He's saying, I am the Lord. 
Moses and Aaron, people of Israel, may I remind you that it is I who will deliver you. I'm doing this so that in no way you think you somehow managed to pull this off yourselves. It is I. And for us, we look in our own lives. This is the same God. He doesn't change. We can look and see what he has done, what he will do, what he, that he has a plan for us, and that that plan involves us and our obedience. That's what Moses and Aaron were finding out. What's your vision for tomorrow, next week, next year? More of the same? More bricklaying? Could God possibly have something great in store for you? And maybe he's waiting. Maybe we've allowed the multiple gods that surround us to distract us and gain our loyalty instead. What about our church's vision for tomorrow? More of the same. Could it be that the simplicity of obedience is the missing component in experiencing God and his plan, not just in our church's lives, but our own lives as well? See, this passage today, it's, it's somewhat of an interlude of God reminding Moses of who he was. And we think, wait a minute, why did he have to do that? The burning bush, the snake... Moses had to be reminded, oh yes, so do we. We need that interlude. We come through all kinds of stuff like in chapter 5. And God is about to do something like in chapter 7. But in the meantime, he wants to say to us, hey, I'm here. I want to remind you of the promises. I want to remind you of your salvation. I want to remind you that I am the Lord. I am the I am. I will be what I will be. He's there. He needs, he, he wants us. He's drawing us in closer into that relationship with him. But too often, we, in our busyness or our doubt, we just say, you know, I, I really don't have time for that. Can we just skip the chapter 6 part and move from the hardship and then show me all these miracles you're going to do? And God says, no, it's the relationship that I'm looking for. That's what he wants with us. Can you believe that? The almighty God of the universe that created every single cell in your body and created the entire universe that we can't even see is interested in you and me as a person. And he wants that relationship with us. And that's what chapter 6 is. It's God saying, this is who I am. And too often we're like, yeah, it's just just too busy for that right now. Tomorrow I'm going to make some bricks, so, you know, can we move on? No. We need to stop. Listen to him. Listen for his voice. And my friends, I, this doesn't mean showing up at church on Sunday and saying, there, I did it. Okay, God, you happy? I'm glad we're here. We need to be here. We need to hear God's word proclaimed. But that cannot be the extent of our spiritual diet. There needs to be something that takes place every single day. If you have somebody that loves you, do you only talk to him once a week? No. We need that deep, deep fellowship with him on a daily basis. Then we're going to know the God of chapter 6. Then we're going to know I am the I am. And that's exactly what he wants. We worship a God who has revealed himself to us. He's redeemed us and offered us the hope of eternal life with him. God is almighty, completely reliable. 
He can be known experientially by those who invest the time and effort to listen to him and truly seek him. Would you bow in prayer with me? Our God and Father in heaven, we do thank you. Thank you for listening to us. Oh, 